Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This time around, we have two segments. In the first, I talk to Brian Oliver, who produced bumpers for Kids WB back in the day. Listen to find out what the process of creating these promos was like, and what he's doing now. Our second segment is a discussion of the music of the 11th Pokemon movie, Giratina and the Sky Warrior. And from Pikachu Podcast helps me match up Crystal K's one to Aaron Brotherton's This is a Beautiful World. As usual, we also give our take on the other music from the movie. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Brian Oliver who was the director of animation at Kids WB back in the day. And just so you know what that means, uh, he didn't necessarily work on any particular show, but what he did actually is he produced a lot of the bumpers and interstitials that you would see during commercial breaks in the network, as well as a few other things that we'll talk about possibly. In any case, Brian, why don't you start? Uh, Where are you from? And sort of how did you get into video production as a job? Well, I'm originally from Kentucky. I grew up in northern Kentucky. Went to college, uh, at a small Catholic college back in northern Kentucky, studying computer science and art. Uh, they didn't have a computer animation degree at that time because, frankly, in the 80s, computer animation was so nascent that it just didn't exist. It was too expensive. You had to have a supercomputer to do it. I was very much interested in effects, visual effects, Star Wars, changed my life, you know, like every kid on the planet. I want to move to Hollywood and do special effects, uh, and ultimately somehow managed to kind of pull it off, um, moved to Los Angeles in 1989, right out of college, and started doing uh, work for Disney. I did restoration work on three movies for Disney, Cinderella, Pinocchio, and Bambi. I was doing court cases. I recreated auto accidents for a while, learning 3D. And then I, in 96, I was contacted by a friend who said, oh, you know, Kids WB, Warner Brothers Network, they, they need people that can do compositing and animation. You should look into it. So I hit up a couple of people and got an interview, and suddenly I was freelancing and building logos and whatnot and moved all the way up to director, and I've been here for 20 years now. Yeah, we'll get into some of your more modern work in a little bit, but let's let's talk about some of those uh, those bumpers and other segments. First of all, there you know, were a ton of these, and they usually involved various characters from the various shows. Sometimes they would even have different characters from different shows or even new audio that had to be recorded. Can you sort of briefly describe what the process was going from sort of initial idea to a produced segment? Sure. Uh, normally, back in those days, we had three uh, main people on, on the development, which would be a writer-producer, uh, who was the same person, and his editor, his or her editor, uh, and then somebody like me on the graphic side, where we would have to figure out, you know, if we could accomplish what they were asking for. They'd come up with some wacky idea where they wanted Ash or, you know, a character from Batman or something interacting together. And we'd have to find that footage in the existing animations of the shows. We'd digitize it, and then we would trace the characters frame by frame to isolate them and put them into different environments so we could get them to talk to each other. Then we had people like Rob Polson and... Uh, Maurice and Sherry Stoner, all the Animaniacs, you know, the, the different voices. Mark Hamill came in a couple of times to do Joker voiceovers for us. They'd come in, they'd record the audio of the scripts, 
we married up with the video and there you go. How many people hours do you think one of these would take on average? Obviously, depend on the level of production, but on average, what do you think? Well, uh, with something like the the, the Pokemon Master uh, song that we're going to get into in a bit, you know, like I said on my YouTube channel, that's about eighty hours of me all by myself, <laughs> um, just cranking. And then adding on to that, the amount of time it took for a designer to do the front end and the back end. On a, on an average spot, though, like our average, uh, what we would call a campaign there might be between probably four or five people on the managerial side of it, you know, producer, executive producer types, and then anywhere from, you know, one to 10 different animators dealing with it, just depending. I mean, I've had some campaigns where we spent thousands of hours on it and then other campaigns where you just kind of crank it out really fast. It just depends on the deadlines. What are some of the, the more interesting or some of your favorite ones that you worked on? Oh, anything with the sock, <laughs> with the uh, the kids WB sock. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I actually I didn't create the character. A, a really talented writer named Ryan Sage created the character. I created the design of the character, um, and then all the animation. So he uh, the sock had a summer party at one point on the beach. Was, I think it was called Surf's Up with the with the sock, and then we had a couple of Christmas parties. And it was just this filthy tube sock that would interact with all of our characters. It was really funny. I mean, people got a kick out of it. Uh, and some of the spots, I actually, um, my kids were between like five and 10 at that time. So I was actually able to incorporate my own children into some of our spots, which was a lot of fun. And some of their friends too, for that matter. You know, they'd, I'd round up a bunch of kids and have them come in. We'd shoot them like either for their mouth motions or, you know, get their voices and then integrate that into the cartoons as well. Really awesome when you can do stuff like that. Oh, yeah, it was great. And uh, it seems like, from what we discussed earlier before the interview, that uh, some of the Pokemon stuff was actually a little bit easier to work with than some of the other shows might have been. Uh, why was that? Well, as anybody who watches Pokemon probably realizes, there's not a lot of animation going on there most of the time. A normal second of animation, for cartoon animation, I should say, is 24 frames a second. For television, it's 30 frames a second, um, meaning that there's 30 individual frames that comprise one second of, of what you're viewing. With Pokemon, they often would only give you one or two unique frames for every second. So it was, instead of having to trace 15 frames of animation, we would only have to trace one, which was awesome because it was a huge time period. Uh, and then we would go back and we'd replace the mouth and stuff to get the uh, lip sync to, to look right. Okay, well, let's talk about one of these in particular. You mentioned it earlier, it's Master Pokemon. Uh, not to be confused with anything from the To Be a Master album, this has nothing to do with that. This is sort of, uh, this was part of a series called Top Tunes Tunes. First of all, how did that, that series sort of get started? There were a couple other ones, right? Absolutely, yeah. We had a couple of Jackie Chans, we had uh, the, the, the Mummy. I'm trying to think of what, well, I guess it was the Mummy. But the... Uh, one of our writer producers, uh, and I'm trying to think of who was actually doing this stuff at that time. Forgive me for forgetting. <laughs> we had we had like ten people, and they're all really talented. Uh, and so they'd have somebody write a song for one of the shows, and then uh, we would cut together an animation to make a music video out of it. And those were um, sometimes they were packaged and, and sent off as top tunes tunes, but they were also repackaged as tsunami tunes. I think it was so you. 
uh, in the last, the later days of Kids WB, when we were doing a lot of tsunami stuff with Cartoon Network, there was a crossover where we repackaged all that stuff. But uh, that particular one, uh, we were getting ready to launch our launches in the fall. We're always like the first week of September. So they wanted something big. They wanted something special. Allison, uh, the singer of that particular uh, song, had come up with uh, the, the music for it and the lyrics and all that. And they said, well, we need it. We want it for launch. And I basically had a week to produce it. And that was, it was crazy. It was a long week. Uh, but they wanted something. I, and the thing that was fun about it for me was every frame from when that ball leaves Ash's hands, as soon as it leaves his hands, it actually becomes a computer-generated 3D ball that you open up and fly into. And we wanted to have, like, you know, this interior universe of the ball and, like, what did that look like? And so we found um, I had, you know, hope finding all these different arenas that were in the shows themselves. And I tried to build environments where the arena, which was a two dimensional, you know, cutout basically from the animation to the show and try to put it into this 3d world so that it didn't look like it was just a piece of flat artwork. And then we had all of those characters, you know, there were probably, I don't know how many 30 or 40 different characters that had to be rotoed and traced and then dropped into that three dimensional universe. It was quite a project, but it was one of the, it's one of my favorite projects of all time simply because it just went down so fast. It just had to be there. It had to be done. And I think people like it. Oh, definitely. It is obviously somewhat obscure because it, it's never been like a DVD extra or anything like that, so it's been kind of hard to track down until somewhat recently, but definitely impressive and a great uh, piece of work there. Thank you. All right. Well, you know, you're still actually in the uh, sort of the uh, bumper production or animation production uh, business. Uh, people may be wondering, well, gee, what happened after uh, the WB and the uh, and the UPN merged together into the CW? Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of what's happened since then? Well, we uh, Kids WB actually turned into, uh, I think it was for kids CW or they uh we, we maintained kids wb for about a year or two into the cw and then they decided they weren't going to keep that property anymore so they ended up shutting it all down which for me was a, a, a very massive letdown because i love cartoon animation i love working on that kind of stuff these days though i'm still doing similar work it's just that it's more special effects driven it's more like i i do a lot of stuff like taking out wires you know removing cables and stuff from shows like The Flash and Arrow and iZombie, Supernatural. I mean, anything that's on the CW at this point, at some point comes through my office for something. You know, generally it's cleaning up footage, uh, removing wrinkles from people's faces, things like that. And it's, been, it's gotten more challenging because we're starting to do a lot more effects type stuff where it used to be more just graphics, you know, motion graphics. Well, yeah, it it never ends. Uh, so I, I would say that you're probably going to keep having uh, things to do there. But um, if folks want to know more about you or some of your other work, uh, where can they look for that? Well, they can find me in two places. Um, my YouTube channel is Zandad, X-A-N-D-A-D. Um, and I noticed when you guys were talking about it on the uh, on, on your, your music uh, broadcast, you kind of like, when is it Zan? What? And the background of it is my son's name is Alexander. And when he was born and I needed a video game character, I, I just needed to name one of my characters. And I was like, well, let's see, I'll be, uh, I'm Alexander's dad. So I'll be Zan dad. Um, 
So that's how my YouTube channel came into being. But then I also have my website, which is the same thing, zandad.com. And you can see all kinds of stuff that I'm working on there. I've got animation. I've got a lot of 3D printing. I've got some music. I've got writing. I've got photography. I do a lot of stuff. Awesome. Love hearing these stories. This is no exception. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian. been great having you on. <laughs> thank you for God. Thanks for looking me up. I'm glad that people are paying attention. Not a problem. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, talking to Brian Oliver, who worked on many of the bumpers uh, of Kids WB back in the day. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from Pikachu Podcast, and we've made our way up to Movie 11, Giratina and the Sky Warrior. And, of course, this is our comparison of the Japanese and English ending theme songs for the Pokemon movies. And in this one, the matchup is Crystal K with one on the Japanese side, uh, not to be confused with the Denise Lara song from the second Pokemon movie dub album. And uh, on the English side this time, we have Aaron Brotherton with This Is a Beautiful World. Very different songs this time. I have, I, I think, some interesting points on each of them. But uh, we start off by talking about what we know about the musicians behind these songs. Uh, and what can you tell me about Crystal K? All right. Crystal K. Uh, she was born Crystal K. Williams in Yokohama. Uh, to an African-American father and a Korean mother, and both her parents were musicians. Um, her mother was a professional singer. Her father, uh, I guess music was a bit more of a hobby to him. He was with the U.S. Navy. Um, but they exposed her early to music and took her to a lot of shows, and she got to meet a lot of famous artists and kind of w was surrounded by talent at a young age. And so it was not super surprising that she made her way into the music industry, and she's uh, fluent in English and Japanese, and those are the two languages she primarily sings in and writes in when she does her own writing. She started singing professionally as a child and primarily performed for commercials, but was signed and released her first album, uh, CLL Crystal Lover Light, when she was just 14. She wasn't especially active after that until 2001, when she came back on the scene um, and sort of rebranded herself as a pop R&B artist. And from there, she steadily rose in popularity and got to be one of the mainstays on the top charts. She collaborated with a lot of artists that may or may not be familiar to you listeners, like uh, M-Flow, Boa, Chemistry. Um, and the one that got her on my radar was Akanishi Jin of Cartoon. She's also done songs for a few anime that some of you listeners might know, like Motherland for Full Metal Alchemist. And today's uh, topic, a song for a little film called Pokemon Giratina Tosora no Hanataba Shami. And by the way, she's the voice of Nurse Joyce Chansey in that film. The producers were actually considering Crystal K to do a song for a Pokemon movie since 2001 after hearing her sing on another film soundtrack, so... I don't know why it took them so long to make the dream come true, or if this was just the song and the time that it worked out best. Um, around 2011, she signed to Universal, and she has debuted in the United States, but she hasn't been super active with new releases lately. Her last release, I think, was the U.S. debut in 2014. 
Um, her fans keep pestering her for a Korean debut, though. Well, I don't know if that'll ever happen, if she learns to speak it, maybe. Let's see, Crystal K, she was really popular through the 2000-2010 range. Like I said, she's kind of stopped releasing things lately. But her real, I guess, legacy and claim to fame is how she's paved the way for biracial performers in Japan. Because she was born in Japan and she speaks Japanese and is a Japanese artist, but she looks like a foreigner. And not just in the music industry, but all throughout entertainment, mixed race talent often credits Crystal K as their idol and the person who kind of made it so that they could succeed. And she's considered a pioneer in that field. Um, and it's all the more impressive because R&B was a bit of a new genre when she was just starting out. It was less established at the time. So her and like some acts like Utada Hikaru had were the ones that had the success and kind of got that ball rolling. So Crystal K really was blazing a lot of trails through her career, and it's very impressive that she was able to accomplish so much, kind of being at the start of all of it. And that's that's what I've got on her. What about this song, uh, One? Uh, who wrote it, and uh, any idea how it got attached to this project? Yes, uh, so the song was... Crystal K is the artist. The lyrics were done by Taguchi Shun and Sakia Kenjiro. Neither of them do I have a lot of information on. They kind of work with Epic Records, though. They're I, I can't see any particular ties to the Pokemon company. If my research is lacking, someone can write in and tell me. But as far as how it got attached to this movie, it's a little bit of an unknown. Because on the one hand, they've been wanting, as I said, they've been wanting to hire her for a Pokemon movie ending theme since 2001 and for whatever reason 2008 was the one where they got her this song we're not sure if it was in development or not because when it was announced that she would do um, a pokemon movie the single that came out immediately after everyone thought was going to be the pokemon movie single because financially that would have made the most sense but it wasn't it was a completely separate single and then one released like a few days i think before this movie dropped in theaters. So it kind of suggests that maybe she had worked on it with a bit more eye to what the plot of the movie was and tying it in a bit closer. But there's really no data on that available. So it could be that it was one she was just working on in-house and when she got contacted, she was like, oh, this will work perfect, let's just tweak it. And then it just ended up releasing later for other reasons. But yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of a dead end when I tried to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, unless a song is really specifically written, we sometimes don't know to what degree or how it got there. So yeah. not a total surprise on your end, Anne. Uh, <laughs> so back on the English side, uh, Aaron Brotherton. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to find out a whole lot about him. The most recent info I have is that he is working in marketing at the Nautilus Corporation in the Portland, Oregon area. And if you don't know, Nautilus is a manufacturer of exercise equipment. I think they make the Bowflex, because I saw that in there. So apparently music is kind of his side career. Uh, he had some involvement with Pokemon, obviously. He's also apparently done some stuff with Razor and Tie, which I think is a, a production company that is somehow related to the Kids Bop series. So you'll see his name listed in there. And I did see some pictures that looked to be of him with a guitar and stuff like that. So obviously does do some musical work, but it doesn't seem like that was his main uh, job, even at the time, possibly. 
I think he may have just been in the right place at the right time and known the right people. Uh, as far as I know right now, he's out on the West Coast and in the Portland, Oregon area. So, don't know much about that. As far as the song writing itself, it's the usual combination you're going to be hearing a lot of going forward. John Leffler and David Wolfert. That is, of course, the fourth and fifth generation dub songwriting team. Don't know much about how this song was written and how it was developed, unfortunately. I never did get an interview with him, unlike some of the other folks around this time. But uh, that's about all I can tell you about the sort of background of the musician and the song. Well, with that out of the way, I guess the next thing we got to do is we got to talk about uh, the sort of sound and feel and content of these songs. Uh, we go back to the Japanese side. And uh, one, you said pop R&B. I would have to agree that that is sort of the, the genre for this. Uh, what else sort of struck you about the instrumentation? Well, she does have a wide kind of range, I guess, within the pop R&B style. But this, when this song came out, I had been listening to Crystal K a little bit. And I was in Japan at the time. So when this song dropped, it was everywhere. And there was something about the flow of it that felt a little different than what she usually did. Like, like a little bit less of a gritty, we're going to jam to this in the club kind of a feel and like kind of more of a grandiose feel. So there's that to it. Like it's definitely still pop R&B, but it's kind of just got a different energy than you typically associate with her songs and with that genre, I think. In my opinion, I'm not a music aficionado. It, we've we've established this over the many episodes together. <laughs> Always good of us to acknowledge our limits. But yeah, I definitely <laughs> agree that that this has a certain, I would say, fluidity to it that sort of moves around and maybe dances a little bit in sort of a, a very consistent or or not stopping motion. Is it sort of like the the words that's coming to me there? But definitely fluidity. It it sort of goes around there. I think you could do some fun mixing stuff with this, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I didn't get to listen to all the remixes on the single, but the single has several different like versions of the song and mixes, and I think I think you're right. I think it lends itself to a lot of experimentation, just because it has that slightly different vibe to it. Yeah, at the same time, though, I would say it feels... It has a bit of a, an airy, sort of um, high above feeling to it. Does that sound about right? I I do, but I don't necessarily know that we're on the same page with those sentiments. Like, like, could you explain a little further? Well, when we talk about the English one, I'm going to have an interesting dynamic I'm going to bring up. But this one definitely seems to focus on sort of the the sense of there's a sense of I guess. A little bit of flight there and lifting up off the ground. Is that sort of what you, what, uh, does that make a little more sense? I guess, like, both in terms of her voice and, like, the, the general feel of the song, you mean? Like, I, I do get the feel of, like, like flight. And, and when this mo- when this song was set to all the commercials and you saw, like, sh- Shaman flying through the air and all these flower petals blowing in the wind, like, it, it fit that image perfectly, yes. And then there is kind of a sense to, with her voice, the the bounce and the rhythm of the R&B feel is more present in the music than in her lyrics. The lyrics almost seem to float above it, if that makes sense. I don't know. Like I said, that's I'm not sure if we mean the same things when we say those words, but I do kind of, yeah, get a sense of floating above. <laughs> 
What about the lyrics themselves? Obviously, there's that sort of hook on the chorus, you know, you are the one. But what else is in this song lyrically? Yeah, this is a song about gratitude, kind of as you would expect from a Pokemon that is the gratitude Pokemon. It's kind of just expressing your thankfulness for having a a special person in your life, a friend or possibly a little more than that, who kind of gives you strength and has helped you to grow and become the person you are and is, you know, gently guiding you to the person you will be. And that's a repeated lyric in the song is like, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done. And there's there's also mentions of things like thousands of flower petals come flowing down on us and like a lot of imagery about like you are so radiant and things that are kind of reflected in the movie. But the primary sentiment is expressing gratitude for all the memories that you've made and the influence that this person has had on you. Sounds like that really ties in, maybe not as much to the plot of the movie, but certainly, yeah, to Shaman's sort of species nickname there, the Gratitude Pokemon, there's definitely an element of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely seeing less direct plot tie-ins, but compared to some of the other songs on the Japanese side, this one is definitely tying into our main Pokemon character in in a very large way. Any of the other characters in there? It sounds like, I mean, the, the sort of the main antagonist is, well, spoiler alert, he used to work for <laughs> sort of our character of the movie that is the good guy. Um, so I guess the gratitude doesn't quite work there correctly no. because of how that that plot resolves. And I, I don't know that it works out any particularly well for Giratina either in terms of any sort of relation there. No, Evil Intern did not get a shout out in this song. But you could definitely make a case for like all the traveling companions and their relationships to each other and to their Pokemon and to Shaman um, and th- to their families. The song is the one that plays on the ending credits as they're all sending bouquets of gratitude flowers back home to mom and to Brock's family and and to Dawn's mom. So I, I definitely think the lyrics to kind of tend to talk more about friendship than familial relationships, but... I definitely think all those relationships of like, you have guided me to where I am and like, where are we going to be when we become adults? And you are an irreplaceable friend who's been guiding me and giving me the strength to move forward. Like that definitely applies to every character in this film who is on the side of good. (laughs) Are there any specific passages? Obviously, most songs in Japanese, but any specific lines you want to call out here? I... I really love the bridge where it's the, I don't know if I'm reading this correctly. I think it's Senbon no Hana Bara something so so ide. Like thousands of flower petals come pouring down. And like, again, it's just kind of that flurry of flowers and flight, that image you get of Shaman. Like, it, that's the one we all have is him or her it flying through the air and like flowers are everywhere and everyone's feeling touched at the kind of that climactic last moment where they say goodbye. Like that's kind of the big moment for me. But then also, yeah, like just gently giving me the strength to move forward for that. I love you. Like that line in the chorus, like for some reason just strikes me in the heart because I am the Ashen Pikachu fangirl like they are they are the core of the series for me and so any line that kind of highlights like that to me is the two of them if if this song were about the two of them it would be because of that line i do also want to call out one last line um 
from the chorus. I just want to tell you, thank you, my one. It just reminds me of that song that uh, Ash and Dawn sing together in Japanese, High Touch, where mm. that part of the lyrics where both both his verse and her verse, they're like, they have these things where it's like, I just want to tell you this one thing. Thank you for being here. I just want to tell you this one thing. It's okay. Um, thank you for everything you said or stuff like that. It it just feels called out in this song, and like I said, it's a song of gratitude that I feel could apply to any one character in this movie and their relationship to others, and that one calls out to me, Ashton Brock. Hmm. So. Well, not sure I can quite match that. That may give you an idea where our third segment is headed, but... Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, this is a beautiful world, has very different instrumentation. It's sort of a... Definitely sort of rock-driven. It's got a, a electric guitar, male vocals, of course, and and all that. Uh, anything else you found notable about the instrumentation there? Well, I do like this song. I think maybe you could speak more to this, but like, there's a lot of lines in it about like how it's a living, you know, the world is a living symphony, etc. So I was very surprised initially, like that it had an electric guitar and kind of more of a rock feel instead of, you know, something more melodic. And I wouldn't say that's completely absent, like the symphonic aspect of the movie, but I, it did kind of strike me at first, like this was not what I expected after reading the lyrics and then finally listening to the song, like, were you taken out of it or taken by surprise? Or, Well, I'd say it's got certainly sort of a, a nature-slash-ecological bend to the lyrics themselves, that's for sure. Having grown up in the 90s, this isn't quite on the level of some of sort of like the eco-friendly songs you might have heard in, in that era, but it's <laughs> definitely about appreciating nature. So there's definitely a thankfulness component to it, but, uh, you know, the the... Um, I think the song is maybe more about sort of uh, lower level, um, sort of taking a look at what's in front of you and what's nearby you and, and appreciating that. So there's sort of a, a dynamic there. Yeah. Um, I guess the one thing I wanted to mention that I'm not quite as fond of here is some of the vocal processing is not really to my liking. Some of the the chorus or whatever, not in terms of lyrical structure, but chorus effect is where you sort of make something sound like there's more than one of them uh, using a... It's sort of like reverb, but not exactly the same. And I don't know that that sound sounded quite as good. Maybe there should have been a, a separate backup singer or something like that. That didn't quite jive with me as much as I would like. It sounds a bit odd to me, I guess. I, do, I would agree with that, Yeah. <laughs> But I, I kind of wanted to, you've noticed probably by now that I've been making this sort of disparity and kind of between, you know, one being sort of the more hovering or flying type of one, and this is more of the ground one. Do you remember, if you have somehow forgotten from this movie, that Shaman, of course, has those two forms. It has the land form and the sky form. Ooh, well so, done. <laughs> In a certain way, I kind of wanted to point that out, that these are sort of approaching the main character sort of from two different kind of perspectives um, in, in terms uh -huh. of their, at least their instrumentation, um, I would say. Uh, did you, uh, would you agree with that, Evan, all? Or am I maybe just trying to put a through line here or what? Well, it never occurred to me until you just said it. But now that you have, thinking of it in that way, approaching 
Shaman's character or Shaman's influence from the two different angles. Like, I'm looking at these lyrics in a whole new light now, and, you know, Shaman does start off that movie as kind of a self-centered little brat, and by the end of the movie has learned to feel gratitude for itself and to appreciate the world and the people around it. So in that sense, you might be onto something with this song is is exploring a different aspect of Shaman and its character. Um, ah. Yeah. Well, it is, yeah, especially towards the beginning of the movie, it is a little bit of a jerk, although if you look at the first you know, five minutes of the movie, it goes through quite a bit in there thinking uh, Giratina is trying to eat it and things like that. but <laughs> True, but like the, the big climax of the movie for Shaman's character, that moment where it turns around to Satoshi and is like, thank you. Like the, uh, up until then, it couldn't say thank you ever. It never said thank you. It was always usually a, a backhanded insult compliment situation whenever anyone did anything nice for it. So, like, I'm kind of, now that you've brought it up, really warming up to the idea of this song being about Shaman specifically and, like, learning to to open your eyes and look at the world and be like, oh, my gosh, this is a beautiful world. There are wonderful people around me, like, and they could just go away and I might have to say goodbye. I need to, I need to be thankful every day and grateful for that magic. Yeah, I, you know, I had not really thought of the song either. I thought it was more addressing the audience. Exactly. About, yeah, you know, but now I, but you've kind of you've brought me a new perspective on it. So <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I think these these sort of mid episode discoveries can always <laughs> can often be the most uh, fun parts of these discussions, uh, and I think this is no exception. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much else I have to say about this particular song. Like I said, I did want to kind of point out that disparity in instrumentation, though, just because I think it sort of, in a way, does kind of still fit the character uh, from the movie. I, I don't know how you would have written, like, they didn't try and do, like, four different endings or whatever for the Deoxys movie, or, like, two songs for Giratina, or <laughs> we will come up to a dub movie in a couple uh, episodes that does have two different ending themes uh, based on the same song, but that's a little ways off. (laughs) But uh, like I said, doing a little research of this, I couldn't help but notice that. No, that is pretty cool. All right. Well, I think we can probably just move straight on to part three here, where we sort of compare and contrast and decide which one we might like a little bit better. You know, I I did state a couple of reservations I had about This is a Beautiful World in terms of some of the instrumentation and and vocal production in particular. Nothing wrong with the singer themselves, but some of the vocal processing isn't quite what I would have liked. Going back to one, part of me does kind of feel like that song, as good as it is, could have been a little bit better in a way I'm not sure I can totally describe. Maybe it's a little off-putting to have that one English line and then it goes straight back to Japanese. Um, it's certainly, you know, you mentioned Crystal K was pretty fluent in English. Um, so I guess that all ties in there. And it is quite common in Japanese pop. It like, I mean, at least it makes grammatical sense. <laughs> yeah, she definitely delivers it better than some of the other times they've injected English into some of these things. So, so I'm guessing that you're leaning a little bit more towards this is a beautiful world. Is that no, no? In fact, actually, I do prefer one, but I hate. Well, hate is the wrong word. I try not to use <laughs> that word in these discussions because I it has four letters. Of course, so does love and good. But anyway, um, 
I wanted to suggest, and I'm sorry if this smacks of whitewashing, I would love to hear an English version of one. Hmm. Obviously, then there you create the confusion with the song from the second movie if you go that far with it. But I, I think it might be possible to write something with a lot of effort and some work. And maybe even Crystal might herself have been up to this if she's very as fluent in English as at least that one line makes her sound. Maybe she could have worked on that. She, she is. <laughs> she, she sings a lot of songs in English. But yeah, I think this is a song that could have lent itself very easily to an English translation because the rhythm of it is very American, if that makes sense to anybody. Yeah, and other than Crystal, if I wanted to suggest someone who's worked with Pokemon or will work with Pokemon at the time we're saying this, I think Erin Bowman might not have been uh, a bad choice there. She would get involved shortly thereafter this uh, with uh, Stand Up uh, for the, the next season theme after this one. And... She's a very talented singer that we will talk about a lot over the next, uh, over uh, a few upcoming movies in the latter half of Gen 4 and early Gen 5. But I wanted to sort of throw that out there. All that being the same, I enjoy listening to one more than This is a Beautiful World. To be honest, actually, my uh, my opinion of This is a Beautiful World has improved a bit over time. I think I was somewhat put off by it initially. I still don't think it's quite as good as I would like, but um, I, I think it uh, that one does outclass it, even though I think with a few tweaks it could be, right now I'd say within the pantheon of, say, Japanese one, one is definitely in the top half. I think we could, with, I'm not sure exactly what, but with a little more work and, and polish, it could go from very good to maybe one of the top three or five of the entire Japanese ending movie theme, you know, list, to be honest. Huh. I feel like there's a little more thing to do with it, but I, I do prefer it over This is a Beautiful World. Huh. What about you, Anne? I, well, you almost made me defect with your, like, observation earlier about This is a Beautiful World, but... I, I am also going to give it to one, and half of that, I have to admit, is this is the last movie that I was actually in Japan for all the hype, so, like, sentimental reasons almost have to push it. Like, I saw this movie in the theaters, like, I was walking the streets when he would hear it playing out of the shop windows, this song, so there's a part of me that could never have not have picked this song, but I I really do feel like it just gives off the aura that I associate with, you know, seeing the movie. Like, the song fits visually. It fits lyrically. Like, maybe not as hardcore tight as some of the English ones that were written directly for their movies, but very close. I'm going to give it to one. <laughs> I think so, too. But I think this discussion has actually kind of improved my, at least my knowledge of, of both of these and I, I think my appreciation yeah. or gratitude <laughs> for each of these. I feel if we had had this discussion like an hour before we actually recorded, like my thoughts are moving so fast with this new way of looking at This is a Beautiful World that I almost wonder if they might shift in like a good half hour's time if I keep thinking about it. But <laughs> as it stands right this second, I'm giving it to one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that that's always fun when we can do things like that. 
Okay, well, there's other music in this one. Now, there is no opening theme rendition, and I think part of that is probably just because of the, the unusual place these, these movies were really on both sides, because on the Japanese side, they had done yet another version of Together is what they were still using here. Um, on the English side, they were also, they had used uh, the current opening theme, We Will Be Heroes. They'd used it as the opening of the previous movie instead of that season's opening theme, and then now it's this season's opening theme under a different vocalist. So we have that bit of an odd scenario. In result, there's not an actual opening theme for, for this movie in, in vocal form, uh, just kind of the way it's structured. As far as the overall score itself, I think it's 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 good. Uh, it does not have a standout piece like Arasian from the previous movie. Um, I think sort of the notable characteristic is some of the tracks have this sort of low synthesized, not rumble isn't the right word. It's sort of a, a weird, ethereal but synthetic instrument. I think it's supposed to represent like some of the 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 Magnazone and and the you know all those Pokemon that are throughout the movie or something like that perhaps. Yeah, I thought I heard some echoes of stuff we heard in the last movie soundtrack for like the Reverse Worlds and stuff like that, but nothing really striking. Yeah, certainly nothing quite as memorable. Although I I do like it. I, I like I said as I mentioned that sort of after the ninth or tenth movie, the Japanese scores. They aren't badly produced or anything, but I think they become less memorable as time goes on, and not just because there's more of them. I, I do think the actual compositions themselves don't quite make the same impression. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, because I, like, a lot of people will say, like, a good soundtrack is one that you don't notice, like, because it doesn't overpower, but at the same time, I think a soundtrack that's completely forgettable is probably not a plus either, and... Especially since some of the earlier Pokemon movies, like the music was so iconic, we still think of it fondly today. It feels a, a bit like a missed opportunity that out of, you know, movie 11 or movie 12, there's almost nothing that I can pick out and as something to keep on the playlist. <laughs> yeah, I definitely recognized it re-listening to it and re-watching the movie a little bit, but... Yeah, there's definitely nothing that competes with uh, Arasian or even some of the uh, less uh, specific tracks in the in the tenth movie and some of the earlier ones there. So, one other song we should definitely talk about that is related to this movie is called, well, the Japanese one uh, direct translation title is "Stay with This Finger." It's also would be known uh, by the English move name "Follow Me." And basically, it's one of those very, very young directed, or I should say, one of those songs very much directed at the younger portion of the audience. I think it has some relationship to a coloring contest or something like that. Uh, and what can you tell us about it? Yeah, um, so if you, I don't know if it was present on the English DVD, but on the Japanese DVD and in the theaters, um, after the main theme song played one, this song started playing, Kono Yubi Tomare. And you got to see the the winners of the coloring contest that they had. Like, they were all displayed and Pikachu was dancing around them and stuff. It was really cute. Um, this song, it, it, it's, it's cute. I, I don't love it, but I also tend not to love a lot of these sort of 
songs for the really young Pokemon audience unless I'm like in a specific mood. But th- I do appreciate the the puns. Like every three lines is a pun on a Pokemon move or a Pokemon name. They get the Bulbasaur pun in that's real low hanging fruit and the Chansey one. But then there's like a lot of Shout outs to Executor and Drifloom and Torment and Ingrained and Reversal. Like, there's some obvious puns and then like some really clever ones and onomatopoeia. So, if you're, if you know a little Japanese and want to just have a fun time going through the lyrics, it can be a, a real treat. But I wouldn't say it's a song that as an adult I'm as fond of, <laughs> but it's cute. Well, someone liked it, because when I played this on the station back in the day, it got some upvotes, so someone out there definitely appreciated it. I didn't think it was bad or anything. I, I kind of do like it myself, too. Maybe not um, knowing much Japanese and not getting, um, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, but not being as, being somewhat oblivious to some of the punnings there makes it a little more palatable. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, these types of songs would typically not do super well on the station, but this was sort of the exception. Not sure what it was. Um, You know, I didn't have a huge sample size to go from or anything there, but like I said, somebody did like this. Yeah, ridiculously catchy. So that that could be it. Like, it's it's just it could be just fun, (laughs) and I just don't appreciate it (laughs) enough. Maybe. Perhaps that's it. (laughs) Okay. Well, time for listener feedback. Now, in addition to the usual stuff with uh, my YouTube channel and uh, Anne's Patreon, I also posted, a few days before the discussion, I posted to Reddit with a few of my thoughts that I've brought up here. And we got a couple responses. So, first off, this is from Toxicant. And this person says, The vocal processing of the English ending could use some work, but it's worth mentioning that in English, when the movie is shown on TV, the ending theme does not play on most channels. And that's that's pretty common. I don't know if other countries do it differently, but yeah, they always want to keep you watching, so they start doing a promo for something, maybe the next show and stuff like that. Um, but this person also said that Sky Warrior is their favorite Pokemon movie and doesn't think that they can choose which one they like more. So sort of a, a split opinion there. Um, let's see, the other one I got was from Jadri8, and, uh, this person prefers one and thinks it suits the film better. Says that, uh, they think that most of the time these are radically different in style. I think the only time when they're not literally trying the same song and they are similar styles, I think there's, there's one that's going to come up later in the Diamond and Pearl generation for sure. Oh, and then Movie 8, we also said they have, even though they're, one's definitely Japanese, one's definitely English, there are some definite tonal similarities in the Lucario movie ending things between the two. Hmm. But yeah, they're, they're certainly not afraid to go in different directions. Um, reading through the rest of this, let's see. Person thought the Manaphy, Dark Rite, and Zoroark movies have some of the best in the English version, but still likes the Japanese ones for those uh, movies. Person also thought that did think, however, that the Lucario movie and the Lugia movie do have better English themes than Japanese ones. I think with the second movie, the Lugia movie, I think uh, that's that's kind of where we've we've come to with that, is that Twat Ma is not a bad song, but the power of one in that particular one, I do think, comes out on top. I could see someone liking it the other way around, maybe, but I think the general consensus is pretty heavily towards the power of one for that movie. Yeah, I think that's where we came down on it. 
And then we have a couple comments on previous episodes. So first off, on Movie 9, I got one from Esther Yauch, uh, Y-O-U-C-H. This person, uh, she loves the Together We Make a Promise song, but says that she does uh, really like um, pretty much all of them generally. Um, And then we have The World of Kevin C., who caught our uh, underappreciated songs, he mentioned, uh, going along with what we said, there's some non-English, non-Japanese ones. And um, All Right from Sun and Moon's Thailand dub. And also the first Korean opening, which got remixed for the Sun and Moon Korean dub. So I really wish I could get a shot there. You can certainly, I'm sure, find those if you know where to look, I suppose. But um, yeah, that's a that's those are some. I I love finding new things to look for here. So that's that's always great. And uh, just to put a little shout out here, if you missed one of our previous episodes and you have a comment on the music of one of those, just dig through Anne's Patreon or I have a playlist on my YouTube channel. Um, go through the whole thing and post some comments there, and we'll try and get around to those in a future episode. Always love that. So even if you missed that particular discussion, go ahead and put a comment on there. Love those. Indeed. And like, I'm especially loving everyone writing in with these um, international besides America and Japan. Like, I would love to listen to them and maybe do an episode on them with you at some point. Well, with that being said, our next episode, we're taking a little bit of a detour here. We're not going to be doing Arceus and the Jewel of Life next. Instead, we're going to be covering Pokemon Movie 20, I Choose You, and its ending themes... So, on the Japanese side, we have a variant of Arasian from the 10th movie. Uh, it has vocals with it now. It's called Let's Walk Together. And it's performed by a familiar name. Asuka Hayashi comes back after a, I guess, 14-movie absence. That'll be kind of interesting. On the English side, we have Haven Pashal. I think I may have said that right. I'm not sure. Um, but she performs I Choose You. Of course, Haven was also the voice of Serena in the series, so we have a couple returning folks there, so that's going to be an interesting comparison, and I very much look forward to it. That's going to be our next discussion. Until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on again. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been Stephen Reich from the Pokepress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, discussing the ending themes of the 11th Pokemon movie. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest Podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. I think you uh, told me earlier a little bit about this, but didn't you get to go to the premiere of Pokemon, the first movie, and there were some kind of interesting things that happened there? Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, that was a big deal for uh, for the network and everybody, the you know, huge premiere of celebrities, and uh, we all got free tickets, and we got to go down to, to Man's Chinese Theater in Hollywood and red carpet and saw the movie. It was great. Everybody was having a great time. And they had, they were giving away souvenir Pokemon cups and uh, you know, all kinds of uh, swag, as we call it, stuff we all get. And I was in the lobby after the movie talking to some friends and other people from the network. 
and I happened to see uh, none other than Stephen Collins, the, the dad on Seventh Heaven, and he's digging Pokemon popcorn cups up out of the trash, and he's got a stack of about fifty of them. And he, I hear him, I overhear him saying, "You know, I'm going to sell these on eBay." Which I just thought was kind of funny because he's an actor and he's famous, and yet he's pulling Pokemon cups out of the trash to sell. <laughs> That's my Pokemon story. That's uh, always those interesting things you kind of see there. Oh yeah. One other thing we should probably mention is there are a couple of alternate versions of one. Specifically, there is a remix version, and there's also a music box version. Let's talk about the remix version. It's, to be honest, I wasn't super impressed with it. It's got Pikachu and Shaman, of course, it's Shaman's Japanese voice, since this is a Japanese song, sort of, I mean, they just say their names like most Pokemon, so there's not really a lot there. I don't think it really gives me that much more than, say, the... Like, like compared to the movie seven, um, the lovely boy, nearly 10 minute remix there, I think gives us a little bit more because we have the performer herself adding some things in there and it's a much longer (laughs) mix. This version for, for this movie, I don't think is quite as interesting. And I I don't, maybe I don't like, uh, Shaman's Japanese voice as much either. It's not totally grating, but for some reason, maybe it's just because Shaman is mostly green on top that um, it gives me kind of a, reminds me of, of Lemmings, and by that I mean the video game and the little pieces of voice that they have in there. It seems like a, a Japanese sort of version of that, and Lemmings actually did have some success in Japan, so I mean that's just totally anecdotal and just me sort of making stuff up. I, I really doubt that there was any correlation there. It just kind of reminds me of that. <laughs> what about you, Anne? Well... I don't know about the lemmings, although now I have images of keeping a a shaman as like a guinea pig sort of pet. But yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the the Pikachu shaman like remix. It's, I mean, I can see kids loving it or or liking it, I guess. But it's, you're right, it's not quite as fun as it should be if they're going to do something like that. So... Yeah, yeah, I just don't have much to say about it. Like, yeah, kind of, kind of a missed opportunity. What I think I would have liked to have seen here, or heard here, I should say, is th- them to do sort of like a some sort of like we were talking about earlier, either based on Shaman's alternate forms, or alternatively, something that sort of was themed more after the Reverse World, like it had a totally different instrumentation or something like that, that gave it sort of more of a... Oh my gosh. Ethereal <laughs> or or wandering f- feeling, something that gives the somewhat Escher-like um, nature of that, that, that side of reality that we see in the movie, uh, brings that into the mix somehow. I'm not sure exactly how that would work out, but I, I, I would like to, them to have been a little more ambitious here. What about you? Well, that is a thought. Like, you know what? If we're going to be ambitious, let's have one with, like, Giratina, Dialga, and Palkia singing. Let's let's just go all out. It could be on the cutting room floor. You and never the know. unknown. <laughs> let's just have them go crazy and, like, Magnetron providing a little dubstep in the background. Who knows? But uh, getting back on track, there is one other version that I think is pretty neat. There's a music box version that I believe is on the score album. I don't know how much to really say about it. It's just kind of a nice alternate version. 
you know, this was actually actually how I first heard the song. I didn't pick up the single until actually much later. So this was sort of my introduction to one. And any other thoughts on the music box version? Um, not especially. Like the ones I kind of gravitated to were the ones released on the the proper single, um, which were the Cornelius remix and the Dex Pistols remix. Um, I, to be fair, I don't like either of them as much as the actual song. But like we were saying in the main part of the episode, because of the different vibe, I guess this song is out. Like you know, it is R and B, but like the rhythm and the drive of the song is less through the vocals and more through the instrumentation. You can play around with the rhythm a little bit. And so I think both of those remixes, while neither of them kind of take the song to a, a new level so that I appreciate as, as much as the original, they are quite interesting. I don't know if I can quite describe them other than to say they're a bit more, like, clubby. But <laughs> Maybe it's kind of like, I actually have not heard those two. I didn't really remember that they existed, but maybe they're like some of the darker remixes of Don't Say You Love Me and The Power of One that... Clearly, we're not really intended for the Pokemon audience. We're more for, like, late night at a club or something like that, and they have some very interesting uh, use of looping and stuff like that. Does that maybe sound... Exactly. Yeah, and like I said, I think it's that exact reason why it doesn't appeal to me quite as much as the original, because it's it's less I feel that they're trying to do something new with the song as much as trying to make it so that you could use it more versatilely in in a DJ situation, basically. And they're very interesting, but they're not, they don't exist to like level up the song to a new place in the same way that, I don't know, other types of remixes would like in the same way, like Yasutaka Nakata remixes a lot of capsule and perfume stuff. Like it just basically makes it into a new song that's not quite what this is. This is more to remix it so that DJs can play one alongside all their other pop tracks and kind of keep the the you know the extended track going, basically. I see. Ah, a Thailand dub. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. So like the day the day Spotify and iTunes and all those places figure out a way to handle the the copyrights across nations so that we can all easily listen to these things. Like, oh, it's gonna be a wonderful day. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's the reason I just can't use these uh, more. I guess you could say mainstream streaming services. Why well, I kind of have to stick to YouTube is just the availability. It's is tough. Not yeah. Where where I would like, um, and I understand some of the legal reasons for that, but it's still kind of a bummer. Yeah, and and you want like the streaming royalties to get back to the artist, and they don't always. If you don't have a service that's able to, you know, make those connections. So, like, like I said, the sooner they can figure out how to work that all out internationally, we're, we're all going to be there with our wallets. Like, <laughs> that went off in a weird direction. <laughs> Non-Pokemon related. <laughs> 